You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. The passage for today is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone, you can join us at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, New City. It's uh, wonderful to be with you all. It's, it's wonderful, we should do it more often than we do, uh, taking historic confessions. Um, by the way, whoever dropped this off, thank you very much for that. We'll save that for after service. Um, that's totally an aside. Uh, uh, but seriously, thank you to whoever did. It's so good to confess together what we believe as a church, the core realities that define our faith. And uh, one element is that it's just good for us to celebrate and rehearse what we believe. Another element is that when we confess creeds like this, so that was written in the 300s at the Council of Nicaea. And when we say that we believe in one holy Catholic church, that word Catholic means universal. We believe in one universal church. We are one small church in Manassas, Virginia, but we are a part of something much larger, much bigger. And as we confess those truths, we're uniting ourselves with Christians that have walked with Jesus throughout the ages, all the way back to the 300s when the Nicene Creed was written. And then even before then, uh, with churches like the church in Thessalonica. So let me intro this book real quick, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, we're going to spend the next few months in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, this is widely believed to be uh, really one of Paul's and the New Testament's earliest letters. So it was most likely written in the late 40s, um, just a short time after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, it was written by Paul, who planted a church in uh, Thessalonica uh, on his second missionary journey. He, he went off from there and was doing ministry in other places, uh, but he wanted to write a letter to this church uh, uh, for, for a few different reasons. One unique feature about the book of 1 Thessalonians is that it's not actually written into any like personal or theological crisis. Uh, if you pick up a book like the book of 1 Corinthians or the book of Galatians, Paul has a very different tone, uh, and there's problems all over the place. You don't really get that sense with the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's sort of just a non-drama, uh, non-conflict-related book that, that Paul wrote to this letter uh, with a, for a few reasons. One, Paul wrote this to renew and encourage his relationship with this church. Uh, as we go through the book, what we're going to realize is in the way we as like modern 21st century Americans relate to the local church, 
Uh, we have a lot to learn from Paul and how he loved and related to the church. And so he just wrote this letter to express his love and to encourage them. Uh, he wrote to encourage them in the midst of hardship uh, from the moment this church started, when you read about it in the book of Acts, uh, on through even when this letter was written, uh, the Christians in Thessalonica faced hardship. And he writes to encourage them that in that. And he also writes to answer some sort of broad theological questions that they have on the latter chapters of the book. Um, that, that's the book as a whole big picture. Uh, you know, a, a great resource to learn about books of the Bible is just the ESV study Bible. If you don't have one, it gives you a little intro right at the beginning that gives some of this context. Uh, but, but why are we going through this book? First reason is this. You've got to understand our philosophy on preaching at New City. We believe the 66 books in our Bible have been inspired by God and given to us uh, as his word, um, as his people. And so uh, our regular commitment is to find books of the Bible and allow the subjects of our sermons to flow right from those books. Uh, whatever creative like sermon series I could come up with or Chewy or anybody could come up with will never compare to what God has already written in his word and its benefit uh, and its usefulness to grow us as Christians. And so this is us just picking a new book to be able to preach through together. Uh, another reason why I picked this book, quite honestly, is because like I'm excited to have like a non-crisis book of the Bible as we've been in sort of like crisis mode for a couple years. This is just a standard encouragement to walk with Jesus. I'm excited about that. I'm excited to look at Paul's encouragement to them under hardship. And I'm really excited to look at uh, the themes of Christian love Christian community. I think of moments when Paul says, like, uh, you know, he says to the church that we didn't only share the gospel with you, but our very selves. Uh, he describes to the church, he says, that you have become very dear to us. There are rich themes of Christian community and life together that I think need to be renewed in our own church. And so I'm excited to consider these themes with you all. So with that as sort of the trailer, the, the setup, let's pray and invite God to speak to us through these first five verses here in chapter one. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm just asking you to do this morning what you did in verse 5 here that Paul describes. He says that the gospel came to these people, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Spirit of the living God, would you enter into this room in this moment as we consider these words, as we consider the character and the work of redemption that you, the triune God, have brought to us? Would you, Holy Spirit, enter into this room in power? Would you enter into this room with specific and clear conviction as you promised that, that you would do? We welcome you to, to um, speak to us this morning. I just pray for your help and your aid so that just like it says here, this would not only be a, a gospel in word only, but also in power. Would you send your power into this room right now? Illuminate your word as I preach it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this was the best thing I could come up with sort of to intro this sermon, and I feel like I need to do a couple pr preliminary things. Number one, like, are there any big Star Wars people in, in the room? Uh, we've got a few. 
can I just ask you, I'm like a moderate, okay? I'm not like a diehard, and I'm going to try to use Star Wars to intro this, but I'm probably going to mess something up. So just save your, like, corrections and uh, clarifications for after the service. If we need to send out a special email of something that I messed up, we'll do that. But just just bear with me for a second. So uh, here's how I want to use Star Wars, okay? The movie series was produced, as we know, in, in like an odd order. Uh, so, uh, and it created a lot of controversy with how they sort of filled in the order of the movie in, in the decades uh, following. When was it made? In like the 70s, 80s? Uh, you know, so they went back in the 90s. And, uh, but the, the, the story begins sort of in this middle period, right? With the central focus, the main character during those first three movies is, is Luke Skywalker. But of course, you realize quickly that there's a bunch of stuff that happened before this, that there wasn't movies to uh, show. There was a whole thing with, um, what, was, uh, what was Darth Vader's name? Um, Anakin beforehand, and there was a whole thing with Yoda and the Jedi that is just sort of assumed but is never spoken to. And then, of course, uh, what they do is they make those first three movies, uh, and they go back, and this is where Star Wars fans, how do you feel about the first three that they went back? So good. <laughs> That's so offensive to the true diehards here. You know, uh, the, the, the first three they made, everybody thinks that those were terrible, but they sort of fill in the story, what came before Luke Skywalker. And then, of course, they go to the end, and Ren is kind of the focus, and they bring back Luke. That's a demonstration that, like, age is not friendly to, to any of us as we see him. Um, and sort of the backstory of it gets filled in. Um, what in the world does any of this have to do with First Thessalonians? Well, there is, in a sense, three episodes or three time periods of the gospel. There is eternity past. There is years roughly 1 to 33 AD when Jesus lived and died and rose again. And then there's this time period that you and I live in, this, this age of the church. And like Star Wars, in the past couple weeks, what we've really been focusing on is this middle section of the gospel. We've considered the role of Jesus suffering, dying, and then rising again on Easter. What this passage actually does, sort of like the first three episodes, but better, is it takes us into eternity past, and it shows us the role of the Father. doesn't mention much about that middle episode that we've been considering the past few weeks, and then it brings us forward into our present age of uh, where we live and the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. And theologians have helpfully observed these three time periods, if you will, in our redemption. And in each time period, each member of the Trinity carries out a specific function for our redemption. So in eternity past, the Father plays his role in choosing us and devising a plan for our redemption. When Jesus enters into the world, he carries out or accomplishes that plan of redemption. And then in the Thessalonians and in our lives right here and now, the Holy Spirit brings that work of redemption to bear on our lives. Each member of the Trinity has a specific function in these different time periods. Uh, to put it even more poetically, as the, the brilliant uh, uh, kind of wordsmith Shylin puts it, he puts it like the following. The Father chooses them. The Son uh, gets bruised for them. The Holy Spirit renews and produces fruit in them. 
And so uh, sometimes we can spend so much effort focusing on the work of Jesus, which we most certainly should do, that we can miss out on the role of the Father and the role of the Spirit, which are just as important in our redemption. So while in recent weeks we've been considering the role of the Son carrying out executing our redemption. In this passage, uh, Paul shows us the role of the Father and the role of the Spirit in accomplishing our redemption. What Paul wants to do is help this young church in Thessalonica understand the great project that the triune God has engaged in in redeeming our lives uh, and the role that each member of the Trinity plays in our redemption. Now, you may be wondering, why is it that we need to to know this? Why do we need to understand the role of the Father and the role of the Spirit in our redemption? And my simple answer is this. If you have a small view of the gospel, you will have small worship and small obedience. If you have a big view of the gospel, you will have adoring worship and radical obedience obedience. What we regularly need God to do for us is to widen our view, broaden our perspective of the gospel, because if we understand the bigness, grandness, awesomeness of the gospel, and how each member of the triune God has engaged in redeeming us, uh, what will flow from our lives is the kind of lives that he is worthy of. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we treat the gospel like double-A batteries, when it is, in fact, a nuclear explosion in terms of its energy. And what we uh, need to do is look at the full picture of the gospel, the role each member of the Trinity plays to help us tap into that nuclear fuel to fuel our lives of obedience and worship and response. And so, really, my hope this morning as we open up the book of 1 Thessalonians is simple. My hope for us is that we would stand amazed together at the gospel of the triune God, that we would stand amazed together at the gospel of the triune God. I want to look, first of all, together and reflect on what we mean by this triune God. What do we mean by that? Number two, I want to look at the role of the Father in our redemption. Uh, Number three, I want to look at the role of the Spirit in our redemption. And then finally, I want to consider what kind of results does this redemption bring in our lives? And so let's consider, first of all, triune God. What are we saying when we believe that? There are two broad types of theology, you could even say religion in the world. There are monotheistic religions and polytheistic religions. Monotheistic means one. We believe in one God. Polytheistic means we believe in many gods. Could be any number. Now, I'm going to read a couple verses from the Old Testament, and then you can tell me, pop quiz at the end, which type of system we believe in. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says the following, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So pop quiz, which do we believe in? A polytheistic or a monotheistic belief? Mono, obviously, clearly states there. But as we study the Bible, we begin to clearly see that this one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, one clear place that we see this, for example, the Great Commissions, Matthew 28, 19. Uh, Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name, number one, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many names? One name. How many persons in that name? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There uh, is one God, three distinct persons. These, these three persons are distinguishable from each other, yet each of them share in the nature of God. You could say all that God is, each of the members of the Trinity are also. They are one in essence. Uh, essentially, they are God. One in essence uh, they share in the divine nature, yet they are distinct in persons. Now, maybe you've heard all kinds of creative illustrations to, to show this. Uh, Three-leaf clovers, eggs, um, water, steam, and ice. None of them work. I actually have a graphic that I do want to review with you that I do think is actually helpful for this. If you guys can throw it up there. This is the best graphic or illustration that you're going to get of the triune God. As you can see on the outer kind of triangle, uh, you have each member of the Trinity, and it clearly says that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And yet in the central, each of them are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Uh, we would venture into error if we simply said there's a God, but he just shows up in different ways. He manifests himself differently, in, uh, but, but it's one God. And we would also be wrong to say that we have three different gods. We are saying something profound. One God that exists eternally in three distinct persons. Um, where, where else do we see this uh, in the Bible? First of all, it's just incredible to me that such an early New Testament document captures uh, the, the Trinity. Right here at the beginning in verse 1, to the church of God in Thessalonians, uh, to the to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a few verses down later in verse 5, we see the mention of the Holy Spirit. Others have said a great place to see the, the Trinity is to take a visit to the Jordan River where the Son of God is baptized, the Father speaks over him, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. You can read about, uh, even in more detail, uh, uh, the, the, these three persons in John chapter 14 uh, through 16, as the Son is speaking to the Father at times and at other times describing the work of the Spirit. But here's the key, and this is the most important thing for us this morning. The place where the triune God reveals himself more clearly than anywhere else is in our redemption, is in the roles that each member of the Trinity has played in saving us, in redeeming us, in, in, in bringing us back to himself. That is where he is revealed most clearly, demonstrated most obviously. And so let's look now together then, number one, at the role of the Father in our redemption. First, to understand the role of the Father, you have to zoom way back in history, back before you were born, back before Jesus lived, back before the forming of the nation of Israel, back before Adam and Eve, uh, back before, as the Bible describes, the very foundations of the earth, in eternity past. To understand the role of the Father in our redemption, you've got to go back before even one molecule was brought into existence onto the face of the universe. Back before anything, the Father was there. And what is the role of the Father at that moment? 
The role of the Father was to love us, to choose us, and to set a plan in motion for our redemption. Let me look at a few verses that describe this. First of all, we see it broadly mentioned in this passage. 1 Thessalonians verse 5, because our gospel, or verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's the role of the Father in choosing those for redemption. It's expressed even more clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So what's happening right there in Ephesians? It's the Father, one, choosing us for adoption, and then setting forth a plan in motion for us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chooses us, and he sets a plan in place for our redemption. One other place that this is highlighted among many others in the New Testament, John chapter 6, verses 37 and 39. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Did you hear those themes showing up again? First of all, Jesus mentions there are these that the Father has given to the Son that will come to him, and how Jesus did not come to do his own will, but to do the will of his Father. What was the will of his Father? To carry out, to accomplish this plan of redemption that we've so highlighted over the past couple weeks. So get this. This is what it comes down to. Before you or I ever took a breath, God the Father knew us, loved us, and chose us, and devised a plan for us to be saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we should marvel at that, but for some of us, it probably brings up some conundrums, some questions. Uh, Ones like, well, if God chose me and predestined me to be saved, what happens to my choice or my responsibility? Some may ask, am I like just some sort of robot under some fatalistic plan, and really my decisions, my choices mean nothing because it was predestined, because God chose me before the foundations of the world? Let me just say this morning this. The Bible affirms two realities. Number one, we make real, responsible decisions to put our faith in Jesus, and yet somehow we do this because he predestined us to put our faith in Jesus. Those two things are true at once. You may ask me, just as my profession is that of a pastor, pastor, help me understand this. How can I make real volitional decisions to put my faith in Jesus, and at the same time, it was predestined for it to be so? Help me understand that. How does that work? And this is my answer for you. I don't know. It's mysterious. It's a mystery. 
I, does that work at any of your other places of employment? Like, like many of you know, I started this barbecue business and I, I'm handing it over to a guy that was working with me last year. And, and yesterday, you know, I was out there helping kind of get it going to, for him to take it over. And this guy, he was waiting on his brisket sandwich for a long time. And so he asked, where is my brisket sandwich? Could I just say in that moment, I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> I guess in this profession, it's okay. But here's what we have to understand, brothers and sisters. Whether we are talking about the nature of the Trinity or God's sovereignty and our responsibility or a myriad of other topics, anytime we bump into the character of God, we will encounter mystery. One of his attributes, in fact, is his incomprehensibility, meaning your little mind cannot fully comprehend God. You fully comprehending God would be harder than teaching a little ant uh, quantum mechanics, okay? Uh, that, that is how big God is and how small we are. There's mystery. But the Bible clearly teaches that God sovereignly chooses us. And when he, his chosen ones hear the good news of Jesus, they make real, responsible decisions to put their faith in Jesus. But there is even a deeper mystery than that that shakes me to my core. And I hope this mystery shakes you to the core too. Beyond the philosophical and philosophical, theological and philosophical challenges that we're bumping into this morning, here's the deeper mystery that I don't understand. Why, oh why, did God the Father choose me? You know, sometimes you get yourself into something and you don't really know, like you commit to something, but you didn't know what you were going to get yourself into. God knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he chose me and you before the foundations of the world. He knew all of my sin, all of my shameful thoughts, all of my hatred and anger, all of my greed and lust, all of my idolatry and my betrayal of him. He knew all of it, and he knew in light of that that it would cost nothing less than the death of his precious son to redeem me. And yet somehow, knowing all of that, knowing what he was getting himself into, he chose you and me anyway. That's the profound mystery for us to grapple with this morning. How could he have chosen someone like me? There's all kinds of theological and philosophical discussions we can have about the doctrine of election, but the reason that it is in the Bible and the reason that we preach on it is for you to fall on your face in adoring worship that the Father before the foundations of the world would choose someone like you. Why did the Father choose you? Because he loved you. Why did he love you? Because he loved you. That's it. That's the answer. That's, that's what we run into. Not because you were better, brighter, more useful, or righteous than others. He loved you because of his sovereign, astounding, mysterious grace. That's why. So just take a moment to meditate that on that this week. What is the role of the Father in our redemption? The role of the Father is choosing us and planning our redemption. We then fast forward to this middle period, the role of the Son. That's where the Son carries out, accomplishes, fulfills the plan of our redemption perfectly. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. He accomplishes the will of the Father. He carries it out to perfection. So if it's finished, what is the role of the Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in this work of redemption in our lives? To state it plainly, the work of the Spirit is to apply the finished work 
of the Son to your life. The role of the Father shows up in eternity past. The role of the Son shows up in roughly 1 AD to 33 AD. The role of the Holy Spirit shows up right here and right now when he takes the finished work of Jesus and he utterly transforms your life with it. To, to illustrate it, maybe you can think about it like this. Let's just say you get really sick, terminally ill. You're brought to the hospital. You are about to die. There's, a very, there's an expert doctor there that knows your exact condition. Uh, he sees uh, what's going on with you. He realizes that you need help very fast, but luckily he knows exactly what you need to fix your condition. So he calls in an order down to the pharmacy. The pharmacy puts together the right arrangement of uh, medications uh, they then send that right arrangement of medications to uh, the hospital room and they set it on the counter. And if it stopped there, you would be a goner. You would be finished. Uh, what would need to happen is a, a nurse would need to take that medication, put it into your IV and bring that, that remedy, that medication to your life. The father sees our condition and knows what we need. The son arranges our redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. But if it stops there, we're goners. We're dead. The Holy Spirit comes and takes the redemption of Jesus, and he applies it to our lives. Listen to it described in verse 4. Uh, we know, beloved, that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In other words, the medicine of the gospel didn't just sit on the countertop in our hospital room. The medicine of the gospel was brought into our lives and made effective by the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to take the finished work of Jesus and to apply it to our lives. And there's three kind of specific things that he does to us that I want to focus on. The first one is that the Holy Spirit gives us new life. So when it talks about here that the Holy Spirit came in power, part of that power is bringing us to life. My hospital analogy doesn't go far enough because our condition isn't one of almost dead, but fully dead, spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 describes. We were spiritually dead, but the Spirit of God gives us life. Romans 8.11 says, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of God comes to us and takes us when we were dead and gives us life. What else does the Holy Spirit do in our redemption? Number two, key aspect. He convicts us of our sin. He brings us to life and then he begins to convict us of our sin sin. It was mentioned right here that the gospel came with full conviction. This is further elaborated on the work of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Part of what the Holy Spirit does for us is awakens us to the awfulness, the dreadfulness of our sins so that we see of our need of redemption. How about this for a transition? I remember the first time I smoked a cigarette. Um, I was with uh, just some, some friends, and uh, you know, those of you who were peer pressured into that uh, years ago can remember that experience. 
You know, the first time you, you take a drag of, a, you see them, they're enjoying it. This is this cool thing that everybody's doing. But the first time you take a drag of a cigarette, you feel like knives are penetrating your lungs. You're hacking and coughing and you can tell that this is poison and that you shouldn't put this in your body. But peer pressure is powerful. And so you don't want to throw it away. So you kind of keep working on it. And then all of a sudden you begin getting used to it. And now all of a sudden you're smoking cowboy killers, Mar- Marlboro Reds, and you're, uh, it's no big deal. It's no problem to you. It's just normal. What would happen if you, unbeknownst to you, went through a lung transplant? You're given fresh new lungs of like a, an athlete or something like that. And you began doing what you've always been doing. You began smoking again. You would immediately feel the, the, the poison, the, the pain that, that, that smoking that in uh, w- w- would give you. What, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? Well, unfortunately, we've become so accustomed to our sin it's just normal. In fact, it's even enjoyable in our natural state. It's just, just what we do. It's normal. It's natural. He gives us a, a lung transplant, even more specifically, a heart transplant, so that all of a sudden, the things that we once did without thinking twice about, now the uh, Acts would describe it as, as piercing our heart, being cut to the heart. The, the Holy Spirit awakens us to the awfulness of sin, not to just point at us and, and, and show how bad we are. He awakens us to the awfulness of our sin so that we will run to the remedy for our sin found in Jesus. And so the final thing that I'd mentioned that the Spirit does is he brings us to life. He convicts us of our sin and he powerfully reveals the redemption that's in Christ. It says here that the gospel came with conviction and with power. Uh, John 16, 14 says that the spirit will glorify the son by taking what is his and declaring it to all of us. The spirit of God shows us our sin, shows us the desperate situation that we're in, shows us the judgment that's awaiting us. And then he says, here is Christ. Here's Christ. He's an all-sufficient Savior. He can redeem even the worst people from the worst sins. Turn to Christ and be saved. He reveals to us powerfully the redemption that's been brought to us by Christ. And brothers and sisters, hear loud and clear, we desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. I or anybody else could come up here week after week and preach on sin preach on the redemption that is Christ until we are blue in the face and left to ourselves, all of those words will fall to the ground and do nothing. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to enter into the preaching of the gospel in such a way that when we hear it, we're brought to life. We feel the the weight of our sin. We see the need of our redemption and we come running to Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our redemption takes the work of Christ and he makes it yours. He applies the remedy to your life. He takes the medicine off the counter and changes us. So in summary, thus far, we've considered the role of the Father in our redemption. We've just mentioned the role of the Son, and we've considered the role of the Spirit. The last thing that we have to grapple is this. When we experience this redemption that the Bible describes What kind of results does it bring into our lives? Paul immediately hits on two of them here in these first five verses that I want to briefly reflect on with you. Um, How can you tell that someone's life has experienced the kind of redemption 
that I'm talking about, two things will happen. Number one, gospel fruit. And number two, gospel family. Let's talk first of all about gospel fruit. So um, as a culture, we've sort of adopted a very private, very personal, very inward view of spirituality. Uh, My relationship with God is kind of a hidden thing. It's a mysterious thing. Uh, it's, It's in my life, but it's not really observable to anyone else. Biblical Christianity is quite different. We would affirm, yes, indeed, the work of the Holy Spirit is invisible. None of us can see the Holy Spirit doing a work in someone's life. Uh, your faith, even, is something inward. It's, it's something, you know, no one can tell kind of what you truly believe in your heart. You can't see it. So how can you tell that the gospel has actually come to bear on your life? You can tell because of the fruit that it brings as a result You can tell because of the difference the gospel makes in the way that you actually live. And I love what Paul does here. What Paul has, and as he describes the Thessalonian church, is he has three attributes or three spiritual qualities that we would generally think of as like hidden, private, personal. These are the three ones. He mentions the big ones in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And our kind of modern understanding of these things is that these are maybe feelings. These are internal things. But what you'll see here is as he mentions them, he immediately mentions the fruit that flows from them. So so listen to how he describes it in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. In other words, these things were not just internal spiritual qualities that they meditated on by themselves. They made a difference in their life. Yes, they had faith, but from that faith, they worked. Yes, they had feelings of love and affection, but from those feelings of love and affection, they labored for people. Yes, they had hope, which is an internal belief uh, that we have, but from that hope, there was steadfastness, perseverance that resulted. And And then he goes on to say the same idea, that the gospel came not just in words, not just in talk, or discussion, our gospel really came to you. I know that it did because it came with power, with full conviction. So it's, it's one thing to say that you're spiritual and that you have a relationship with Jesus. It's quite another thing to be a different human as a result of it, to experience deep conviction in your life that brings about real change. So here's the question that I want to invite you to grapple with this morning. This passage describes the work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. Have you experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life? The conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning your sin. As one preacher said, it's one thing to say, well, I have this new relationship with God. But if you actually have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you will also have another new relationship. You will have a new relationship with sin. It's not enough to just say that you have this new relationship with God. Has it transformed the way you relate with sin? Do you feel conviction for your sin? Not just sorrow, not just regret, but conviction such that, again, in the book of Acts, it says that when they heard the preaching of Peter, that they were cut to the heart. 
Are you cut to the heart by your sin? I am not asking if you are perfect. I'm not asking if you live a flawless life. I am asking if you are cut to the heart by your continued sexual relationship with people that you're not married to, either in person or on a screen. Are you cut to the heart by your anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness that you hold? Are you cut to the heart by the lack of integrity in your life? Are you cut to the heart convicted by your self-righteousness and judgment over people? And does that conviction, that being cut to the heart, lead to gospel fruit, a changed life, uh, work, labor, steadfastness? If you have experienced the redemption of the triune God, you will be different as a result. And I'm not bringing any of this up this morning to make you feel bad or to make you you know, wallow in the problems that you have in your life. I'm, I'm bringing this up in the hopes that the spirit of the living God would meet you this morning, convict you in the midst of your ongoing sin, cut you to the heart, and then show you the, the way to the redemption. Shine the spotlight on Jesus so that you can be transformed and be saved. The gospel transforms us. If you are living in sin, unmoved, unconcerned, and you feel conviction this morning, let it lead you to the only remedy that there is, the only solution. The plan of salvation devised by the Father, the plan of salvation carried out by God the Son, and the plan of salvation made available to you right now by God the Holy Spirit. Let it lead you to repentance. Let it lead you to Christ. And then one final consideration for us this morning. What are the results of the triune God bringing his redemption in his life? A, a final result for us to consider this morning is that it places us in a family. Uh, this great plan of salvation saves us individually, but it places you in a family. And you see that immediately here as Paul is not just writing to an individual. He says, you know, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of God, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can see the familial tones show up as he just addresses them all throughout the book, but you can see it in verse four. Just the simple phrase, we know, brothers, as he, as he talks to this church, he's not just talking to acquaintances, friends, companions. He says, we know, brothers. Paul recognizes that when we've experienced the gospel, it places us in a community and a family. And in that family, I think a couple big things happen. The first one is love. Paul mentions here this labor of love. Uh, the, the church is the place where we tangibly, practically express the love of the Father to one another. In the way we show hospitality, in the way we care, in the way we help in the midst of suffering, in the way we show interest in one another and spend time together, it, it takes the invisible love of the triune God and it puts it on display in the way we relate to one another. And then the family of God is also here for our growth. If you lack the kind of fruit that I'm describing in your life this morning, it very well could be because you are not utilizing the gift of the church. The church is a greenhouse given to us by God where the fruit uh, that flows from our salvation is given a place to grow and be nurtured. I want to ask you this morning, are you taking advantage 
of relationships in the church to bring about confession, honesty, the desire for growth, the desire for more fruit in your life? Let me just ask you to ponder specifically what needs to change about the way you are relating to the family of God, the local church. What we're beholding this morning is just just a bigger view, a a wider view of the gospel. We're, We're beholding the triune God and the grand project that he has undertaken to save us. We've stood amazed at the role of the Father in choosing and planning our redemption. We've stood amazed at the role of the Spirit in bringing that redemption to bear in our lives. Let's now finally stand amazed at the work of the Son by coming to the communion table together, where we remember the source of our salvation. Let's stand amazed at the Son of God in his work in living in suffering, in dying, and rising and ascending for us. I invite you this morning, if you believe this gospel of redemption that I've preached this morning, to come forward to take the elements of communion. And maybe you need to sit in your seat and and invite the Holy Spirit, just like it says here, to come in power, to come in legitimate conviction. Maybe you've been in something so long, it's just become normal. Um, It's just like chain-smoking cigarette. Like, it's just normal. It's just a part of your life. Would you invite the Spirit of God to bring conviction to you? And then take those elements, reminding you tangibly that that's where the remedy is found. It is not found in you trying harder. It's not found in you setting up the right system. The, the, The remedy is found in Jesus. Now, there may be others of you this morning, and you're here, and you do not believe the good news of Jesus. My invitation to you is not to come forward and to take communion, but to ponder your own need of salvation. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing up to mind your life, your sin, in ways that you've not experienced before. I would allow you to just invite God to to point out what's wrong, what's broken, what's sinful about you, and then for you to come to Jesus with all of it, saying to him, I am a mess, I am a sinner, I cannot save myself, but I believe that in you, Jesus, is everything that I need to make me right. If you want to consider that or talk more about that at all, I would be eager to do so. But would you just ponder those realities as we get ready to come forward and take communion together? Let me pray for all of us now as we uh, get ready to share in this family meal. Father, thank you for the gospel that you planned before the foundations of the world. Jesus, thank you for carrying it out, for accomplishing it, for living, dying, and rising in our place. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing the work of Christ to bear on our lives. Thank you for the grand plan of salvation that you have accomplished, and uh, we want to stand in awe of it. We pray that we would tap into just this extraordinary power that's available to us in the gospel. It says, Paul says in Romans 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. God, we wanna tap into the power of the gospel of the triune God here as we worship you and as we go into our week. So Lord, thank you for this great plan of redemption that you've brought to us. 
Would you, Holy Spirit, now just kindly convict us wherever we're at, whatever we've been living in, whatever is out of step with you in my life as I stand up here and everyone's life as they sit in these seats, as they gather in the back, would you now do what you said that you would do? You came, you were coming into the world to convict the world concerning sin. Would you convict us and lead us to the remedy, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, God? Bring fruit in our lives. We want to be different people. How can we just be the same after such a great salvation that you've provided? We can't. We can't. Would you bring in the fruit uh, that, that you're worthy of? Would we now live lives worthy of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.